And this is not a political podcast, um, but we are talking about a politician. We're an anti-bullshit podcast, and this is just (laughs) such bullshit. Hey, and welcome to the Meet Your Heroes podcast. My name is obviously Elliot. And I'm obviously his wife, Audrey. And this is the podcast where we... Ignore the very good conventional wisdom and get to know what big parasites your heroes really were. Timely. Most of the time. Also topical. Oh, so topical. If you're not, if you're not uh, up to speed, we're recording this in week two of the apocalypse. Uh, <laughs> it's only week two. <laughs> I mean, it's not true. This has been going on for several months. Just like week two of state of emergency, I guess you could say. The, for us. Yeah, for us in the United States. If you ignore the state of emergency and the looming implosion of our healthcare system, the weather has been really terrible. <laughs> it has, in fact. Yeah, that says that's to say nothing of the economy. Yeah, economies. Well, literally, literally last week dropped more than 1929, like Black Monday, mm-hmm. and no doubt dropping further imminently as well. So all that to say... Things are looking up. <laughs> Things are looking up. Um, yeah, not even to say that it can only get better from here because they could definitely get much worse. Oh, it will get much worse. Basically, we are just recording this podcast as a sliver of entertainment for people who are not leaving their homes, who are doing the right thing, sheltering in place the best that they can financially and professionally, and... It feels like our patriotic duty. Yeah, if you're out hanging, if you're out hanging out, uh, chilling with other people right now because you're not worried about affecting you, you stop don't listening. This. Yeah, you, yeah, no, this go is not for you. Yourself. Turn off. Go Woof. away. Woof. So, speaking of global pandemic. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, who who is our hero today? Yeah. So this week's... the sp- the flu of eighteen. 18- it's not. But this episode was inspired by. Another notable president who probably deliberately, but at the very least, because of willful ignorance, botched the early response to another pandemic. We're talking about Ronald Reagan. Oh, okay, good. Because I didn't know who the president was for the last uh, flu pandemic. But this is good. Sure. What do you know about him? What do I know about Reagan? Former U.S. president. Indeed. In the 80s. Yes. Um, Republican. Mm-hmm. Formerly an actor. Yep. And a generally considered a conservative hero. He was all of that and more. So we're going to learn a lot about his legacy and some more of the lesser discussed points of it. But um, before we do that, quick bio. He was born in 1911 in a small town in northern Illinois. His mother was a homemaker and his father was a, and this is very interesting, salesman slash storyteller. Unlike his Catholic father, Reagan's mother was very, very religious and heavily involved in their Disciples of Christ Church. So she was adherent to this very specific ideology called the social gospel. And that's important because it later informs Reagan's sort of like 
moral majority figurehead, right? So the social gospel was a movement in Protestantism that applied Christian ethics to social problems, uh, especially issues like social justice, economic inequity, poverty, alcoholism, crime, racial tension, slums. That's a word that was used to describe this, not a word that I would typically use. Unclean environment, child labor, lack of unionization, poor schools, and the dangers of war. Basically all the things that are wrong with the world. Yes, right. So Christian principles to grave inequities and things that aren't going so great. He was able to go to college at 16. So he left and went to Eureka College, which was um, a religious university. There, biographers note that he was part of a fraternity. Um, He was also a cheerleader, a member of the football team, captain of the swim team, student body president, and he acted in theater. For all of those accomplishments, he also was just not a very good student. He was apparently quite indifferent to academics and had like a C average. Not much for the book learning. For to be out cheering with the boys. Indeed. So, um, middling student that he was, he left college and became a radio announcer. Sports specifically. Um, And so he did that for a few years. By chance, during one trip with the Cincinnati Cubs, he did a screen test in LA. He ended up, as a result of that, with a seven-year contract with Warner Brothers. So he has a seven-year contract and he talked- How does he get this contract again? Kind of by chance. He just does a screen test. And at the time, there was this category of actors (laughs) that we now would like colloquially refer to as B-list. Back then, it was like explicitly B-list. Oh, there's like a list. Here's the A-list and the list of other actors. And he's on the other list. On the other list. Yeah. He said directors wouldn't say things like, um, does he have talent, but um, does he have availability on Thursday? He spent a few years there just as an extra, basically. But within the first two years of his contract, he had bit roles in like 19, 20 different films. And by 1941, so he was like 30 at this point, he was considered a real up-and-comer in film. You know, you fill enough seats, you get enough attention, you're an up-and-coming B-lister, right? That's the year that he has his most iconic role. I don't remember what it was called, but he, something about a rat, I think, brother rat, rat brother, it's not, rat man, rat man, we can call it what we want, who cares, <laughs> history's for losers, <laughs> um, <laughs> but the movie was so popular that it, uh, Warner Brothers tripled his salary to $3,000 a week. Oh my. Today's money? A million dollars a week. $52,000 a week. Okay, that's close. So just imagine being a B-lister who suddenly has $200,000 a month in 1941. That's the Well, I mean now, $200,000 a month now. Yeah, that's crazy money. Yeah. Um, Just for rat face. That's it. Just for rat face. And bummer for him, that's when he peaked. His acting career really peaked then because you know what else was happening in 1941? World War II. Yes. So um, shortly after that iconic role, he was drafted. He was 30 years old. They brought him in. He, for some reason, medical or otherwise, like didn't have any like 
active role, but he was drafted to do something. Peeling potatoes. More administrative, but yes. Right. So he goes to war. Um, he returns. He goes to an office job. He, he goes to an office <laughs> job, it seems like. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, he returns. Nobody wants to hire him because at this point he's like 35. He wasn't that good to begin with. Mm-hmm. The thing he's very good at, though, knowing who to talk to, connecting with them, knowing what's up. He is fine not having screen time so long as he has influence. Okay. So he eventually makes his way up to um, like an executive level in the Screen Actors Guild. Recently, it was discovered that during this post-war period when he was leading the Screen Actors Guild, he was also an FBI informant. Oh, of course. So he's using his influence and power to sort of like shape the landscape in Hollywood, working with executives, hire this person, do this. Here's like the general direction we want to take Hollywood in this post-war era. We think about it now as like Hollywood's like glamour days, right? He was also 100% providing the FBI with the names of other actors who he thought were communist sympathizers. Uh Uh-huh, yes. Just snitching and... Just snitching. Hardcore Hollywood snitching. It essentially created what we now know as, like, the blacklist era. And let's just keep in mind here, right? Like, this whole era is about people, like, who are ideologically communists, uh... Right, one, or maybe even not. He or, just might think they are or have some reason to manipulate the environment yeah. such that they're blacklisted. Could have a grudge, right? But also, like, if you think, if you have communist political beliefs, that also does not at all make it a crime, but it would definitely, like, cost these people entire careers. Their entire careers, yes. Many, many Academy Award-winning actors were blacklisted during this time. Oh, Absolutely. Zooming out for a second, a lot of people like to talk about Reagan like he was this big Hollywood star, right? That he was this like leading man. We've already talked about the fact that he was B-list, but because of all of this influence and power that he had with Screen Actors Guild, he was able to like sidle up to some very famous people, including his first wife, Mm. who um, her name was Jane Wyman. And she was actually a really fucking big deal. She ended up winning an Academy Award, very famous, A-list for the time. Right? Better what she did. Much better actress than he than he was. Yes. He was essentially her arm candy. Uh-huh. Would you have been able to name her? Yeah, not at all. No. Anyway, so they're married. They have a couple kids. His acting career starts to dwindle. And he begins to have this conversation with Jane. Like, hey, the thing that I really like is uh, politics. I hate communists. I think I'm super (laughs) smart and charming. I know a lot of people. We have a lot of money. I would like to get into politics. She is like, absolutely not. At the time, she was a conservative Republican and uh, he was a Democrat. Wait, he's a snitching FBI informing anti-communist Democrat. He was, right? Seems like he had not quite found his home yet. He had not. Um, And so this leads to a divorce in 1949. So at this point, it's like the 1950s. Now we're going to talk about his political career and basically all of the things that we know him for more now. Sure. So all this, this little stint in Hollywood didn't really make him that impressive as an actor, but it set him up for the chapter of his politics. 
Yes. And the chapter of his politics that we that the chapter of his life that shaped his politics the most is actually this very bizarre chapter. He accepts a job with General Electric. Oh, okay. Right. Wait, bizarre. B- to get into politics? To marry two worlds. <laughs> the career he's had up to this point, which is acting with this sort of like political... Um, these political aspirations he has around unions and business and influence, right? He wants to start to elevate his name. So he goes on to host this very strange series sponsored by General Electric. It's called the General Electric Theater. And it's not that interesting. It's like a variety show where every week they like retell a story with actors and he's the host. It's very bizarre. Okay. He's, yeah, a TV host. On of a propaganda a netra- yeah. uh, network. Yes, right? okay. <laughs> um, and he, at the same time, for this contract, not only is he hosting this weekly variety show that's on like the radio and TV, he's traveling from GE plant to GE plant where he's essentially hosting rallies every week trying to like pump up the General Electric factory workers. He's like a motivational speaker. He's like a motivational speaker. Wow. And what started as a sort of like pro-worker, pro-union, we need to be all in this together, very, very rapidly becomes, hey, these bigwigs at GE want me to shut my fucking mouth about the workers' rights. And they want me to talk more about like the business impact. And we're pro-business. And like, we need to like come together to lower regulation so we have more of a profit as a company. <laughs> weird, weird as hell pep talk to be giving. Um, it's so weird. And he does it for a decade. Oh, wait, wait. He not only, he not only is like, oh, yeah, okay, cool. He sticks around for 10 years? Yes, he basically makes a million dollars a year to do this. Man, I went into the wrong business by not going into <laughs> motivational speaking to factory workers. Right. So that's, by the way, that is not quite as much as he was making in Hollywood, but it's definitely more than he made in Hollywood. Like on a per year basis, maybe not as much, but he was way more successful just like beating the corporate propaganda to workers than he ever was making movies. Yes. Wow. Absolutely. Yep. At this time, early though, in the 50s, when he starts doing this, he's involved in a ton of committees and organizations that were considered like left wing, right? He campaigned against actual Republican-led legislation that included, like, right-to-work laws and that sort of stuff. But he's traveling around. He's winding and dining. He really... Right-to-work, which also means, like, union-busting laws. Union-busting Just busting call them what they are. Yes, yeah. they're union-busting laws. Um, but his ideolo- ideology about business and freedom, that's a very specific word that he uses when he talks about this, and um, government roles by the end of the 50s, has shifted dramatically to the right. So he's speaking with 200,000 GE factory workers a year, started as a union advocate, meets with like 10 executives, and is like later days Democrats. I mean, there's, I gotta tell you, like, who would have thought that starting off as union representative, (laughs) for the low, low price of a million dollars a year, you can change somebody's (laughs) mind about that? What do you know? Right, right. I should know it's a million dollars a year today's money, but it was... You know, one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year equivalent. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's just a shit ton of money in the fifties to host rallies. What you're saying is the one time when my 
go-to back of napkin calculation for what inflation right. <laughs> was. You didn't even give me the the satisfaction of doing the calculation. I didn't. Okay, so he was making one hundred fifty thousand dollars a year, which in today's money a was a million dollars a year. Okay, yep. got yep. it. Keep going. Keep going. Um. So around the same time, he and Nancy get married, early 50s. By the mid-50s, he is a Republican. He more and more legitimately believes that, like, free markets are the key to a prosperous nation. And he just hated the idea that the government would have any sort of overreach. Like, I don't know, protecting workers. By the 60s, because GE would not let him, in his spare time, be a politician, he leaves. He's just like, he. somebody asked him, like, oh, so you left GE to become a Republican? And he said, no, I left GE, and I didn't leave the Democrats. The Democrats left me. Yeah. Which is gross. Um, he's, you know, he has this platform from speaking. Wait, what year did he leave? Um, it's the early 60s. Oh, okay. So let's be clear. What he said was, I was a Democrat until the civil rights movement. And then I was like, that's not for me. No, thank you. Just wait. I mean, what he's saying, they left me. What he's saying is, oh, I was okay with this until it became about equal rights for black people. And then it was like, that seems like a bridge too far. He doesn't actually have any political campaigns. He's at this point just like a politician. He's, he's like, I'm not a politician, but I play one on TV, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> yes. He like goes around to all of these conservative campaigns, starts endorsing people, and then just like speaking at the rallies. The thing he does very well is host fucking rallies. Yeah, that's... And what we've learned is that if you're trying to convince Republicans, that's basically all it takes. Just be good at rallies. Be good at rallies. Wow. Thanks. He's very good History. at rallying around. It rhymes. <laughs> or... Opposing Medicare, food stamps, uh, raising the minimum wage, and the Peace Corps. He's <laughs> against the Peace Corps. <laughs> like, he mobilizes people around anti-Peace Corps activities. Wow. Uh, you know what he didn't hate, though? Hmm. Guns. He fucking loved guns. Mm-hmm. And he and the NRA get real tight during the early 60s. Which is going to be problematic later, but a huge part of his early political career was Great. funded by the NRA. Loves guns, shooting guns. Loves guns, hates Peace Corps. <laughs> um, but the Gun Corps, however. The Gun Corps. Big fan. Yes. He hated Medicare so much that he actually created a recording what? for the American Medical Association. And I'm going to quote what he said. Um, He said that such legislation would mean the end of freedom in America, that we will awake to find we have socialism. One of these days, you and I are going to spend our sunset years telling our children and our children's children what it was once like in America when men were free. Oh, God, this is... Okay. So just with the distance of history, the most nauseating part of this is that... uh, the thing about our current political situation is that now, old Republicans who always vote love Medicare. Love it. Which is Got it. just socialized medicine, totally. but they only love it for them. Like, yeah, you have to yeah, be yeah. a boomer to get socialized medicine in this country. Big time. And they love it. If you're, if you're not from America listening, so we have international listeners. So the weirdness of our political situation is that old Republicans vote reliably and they vote always against socialized health care. 
but they love this one program that is just socialized healthcare for them, literally yes. for old people. Like love if you're it. over 65, and it is insanity because it is like this incredible like big portion of the government that if you cut it would like erase the debt, accomplish all these other things. But they love their socialized medicine. They just hate the idea of giving it to anyone who isn't at least 65 years old, and which is insane. And if more people had it when we were younger, there would actually be much fewer downstream costs to yes. everybody yeah, would, over would, time. People who can't get to the hospital now wouldn't be sick when they're 65. They wouldn't have compounding health threats. Yes. Yeah. What we know now is like every single study that's been done by every major university just shows that you save incredible amounts of money with socialized medicine, which is why basically every country in the developed world has 100% health coverage, universal health coverage, Except for the United States. Yes. Inexplicably. And this is not a political podcast, um, but we are talking about a politician. We're an anti-bullshit podcast, and this <laughs> yes. is just such bullshit. Yes. We are talking about a politician whose policies have essentially, literally since the day we were born, shaped the current like economic, uh, health care, and social structures. And things are not good, folks. <laughs> yeah. They're not good. It's actually a time when this matters. Turns this out. really matters. It turns out that... It, it just so happens in the last week. It, 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 just think about this. We have a system that you don't get health care in this country unless you have a full-time job. And it just so happens at the critical moment when, like, everybody in the country needs health care more than ever, we're going to hit, it looks like, at least 20% unemployment. Yeah. So just, like, let's make sure we take away people's health care when they lose their jobs. Why? Literally, the only reason is arcane tax purposes back to post-World War II, like, makes no difference in the long run. If there's no reason... Oh, my God. It just is such insanity. And we have Reagan to thank for enshrining this as a core tenant of the Republican Party. Absolutely. So there's all that. And um, <laughs> really bumming on Medicare. By 1964, this is when his political career skyrockets. Up to this point, he's been kind of like a shitty dude, just personally trying to influence some things, does some things that a I would say like a large scale, but still like micro in the grand scheme of things. I mean, it sounds like right now the shittiest thing about him is not he's just like not wrong about some of these policies, in my opinion. Right. But like he he starts off like super common people's rights. And then for the low, low price of a million dollars a year, just like <laughs> totally changes the tune. Yes. And then goes on to be like, now that I'm convinced that this is the right way and it's going to work for everybody like it worked for me. Let me make that a law. <laughs> yes. So. Uh, yeah, this is where his shitty beliefs become policies that actually start really, really hurting large groups of people. Because now he's like in the running to be a real political player. Yes. By 1966, he's elected governor of California. And he won this election based on two promises. And these promises are quotes. <laughs> so I'm going to read them like he said them. His first promise is to, quote, send the welfare bums back to work and... In referencing this sort of burgeoning anti-war, anti-establishment protest movement happening specifically at Berkeley, he was going to, quote, clean up the mess at Berkeley. So he got elected on two promises, uh, send people to work and tell these students the to dirty shut the hippies. fuck up. Yeah, to get out of there. <laughs> yes. Clean them up. And the clean up the mess at Berkeley is something he like really, really, really tried to do. Okay. Because we all know Berkeley as a bastion of conservative thinking these days. Yes. <laughs> he <laughs> hated that the leadership allowed students to protest. Which, by the way, is a fucking constitutional right. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's not get lost in the details, though. It's very annoying. Couldn't stand it. So um, there was one pretty major high conflict event that happened as a result of this, this like, personal vendetta against free speech. 
he decided the best way to manage this anti-war, anti-establishment protest was to send the California Highway Patrol in to break it up. Wait, the Highway Patrol? This is basically like the only law enforcement body except the National Guard that he would have control over, right? Oh, because it's like, like state. It's state. Yep. Yeah, all the other law enforcement is like belongs to local municipalities. Mm-hmm. But he has control over the Highway Patrol. So he sends okay. in the Highway Patrol. They come in guns blazing. They kill a student. They blind another. And 111 officers were injured, including many being actually stabbed. Reagan's like, well, that sucks. So now here's 2,200 National Guard troops. We're coming to occupy this very small park in Berkeley, California. Oh, wow. Okay. There. You, well, that. Yes. They lock down this park. They take it over. The National Guard's like, we're not leaving till every student has disbanded. They stay there for over two weeks. And when the media asks Reagan about this. Like, why? What are you doing? Yes. Proving a fucking point. That's what they're doing. He's just proving a point. Yeah. That I'm going to make sure that you do not have your constitutional right to protest. (laughs) If if it's the last thing I do. In fact, he says, if it takes a bloodbath, let's get it over with. No more appeasement. Wow. And, and about basically children. And can I just say, so the thing that is just like just galaxy brain levels of lacking self-awareness here is his threat is like, if you give people health care, we will live in a totalitarian state and then proceeds when people protest mm. to send in 2000 troops mm. and be like, if we're going to kill you to get you to shut up, then we're going to get you to kill you to shut up. <laughs> get rid of those constitutional rights, yes. but no free health care or you'll have a totalitarian state. Right. What the fuck? Yeah. That's very, very early in his governorship. He stays for two terms. I feel like he, it's going gonna, it's gonna to say something about his style. It's going to say some things. He stays in office for two terms, and he obviously does a whole bunch of shitty stuff. But he also did some things, and I think this is just, like, so important to highlight, given this, like, hypocrisy that we're already starting to notice. He did some things that if he were a Republican now he would be absolutely laughed and or (laughs) laughed out of office and or like marched out at gunpoint. Now we would consider them like partisan issues. At the time, they were just like racist, right? Uh, It's the 60s, civil rights era, as you noted. And in response to the Black Panthers open carrying to protect communities in Oakland, he repeals the open carry laws. Oh, yeah, yeah. Super for this. I do happen to know about him. Super mm-hmm. for gun rights until Black Panthers start to carry them in self-defense. And then they're like, yes. gun control now. Gun, <laughs> gun control, control in California. Now. Yep. So that sucks. And then um, <laughs> he also makes abortion legal. Um, he at the time wasn't that like labored over it. But later when it became a partisan issue, he talks about it being like this major regret that he had. Yeah, because it's real, it's real hard when you're like, oh, yeah, I'm poor people's rights. And then you give them rights and then other people are like, oh, nope, can't do that. And you're like, oh, never mind then. Right. Sorry, my base. Uh, <laughs> take those rights back away. But let me tell you, cherry on top is that this next thing is what he would go on to say was the biggest regret of his political career. Mm. Do tell. He made California a no-fault divorce state. Wait, like, you that, can file for divorce. <laughs> what? His yeah. regret was that you can file for divorce? Without either party being, like, to blame. Yeah, so if you're just like, 
we don't like this anymore. Wait, he's saying before, (laughs) if you were getting a divorce, you had to be like, it was this person's fault or is this person's fault? That that still exists in like many, many states. No default, no fault divorce is not a universal thing. Really? Yes. California is notorious no fault, which also means that like from the moment you get married, everything's community property Mm -hmm. unless you somehow divide it up. Wait, but just giving people the right to say we're getting a divorce and it wasn't somebody's fault? Biggest regret of his. We haven't even gotten into the shittiest things he done. He's done. It is so hysterical to me that he says, "No fault divorce was the biggest regret of his political Sir, career." Sir, we're not even past your governorship, and I have several suggestions. He's already had a divorce himself. I know. I know. <laughs> no fault divorce. I dig it. I mean, it wouldn't have been at oh, the time. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, so he is governor for two terms. Decides not to run for a third. Has presidential aspirations. Runs for president in 76. Loses. 1980, he tries again. And he wins. Coincidentally, he was the first president ever to have been divorced prior to his election. And it was his fault and he hated it. Yep. Family values. Family values. The, the, Family values. Imagine Listen, that. The Republican the Republican candidate. Can you imagine Republicans ugh, in today's day and age even considering voting for somebody who'd been divorced before? I just... I mean... It would be too hypocritical. I mean, if they've only been divorced once at this point, <laughs> that's a goddamn dream. And yeah, to me, family values are like choosing your family. You want to get fucking divorced? Great. See ya. Made a big mistake. Person turned out to be a shithead. Great. Leave them alone. Please leave. Go. Anyway, so he runs in 1980. His campaign stressed ideas like lower taxes, stimulate the economy, less government uh, in people's lives, states' rights, and we should have a strong national defense. Just like his anti-war mom always wanted. Yeah, we've kind of, I think that ship has failed. The whole like uh, Christian Christianity means like uh, bringing an informed approach to society's ills. Seems like... Um, Seems like he's not really uh, still sticking with those ideals. Right. And if those ideals are held deeply in your heart and you live them the best you can, great. So long as you don't enact sweeping Mm -hmm. national policy as a result of that. All right. So Reagan is living large. It's 1981. He gets into office and one of his first major beefs with the law, any guesses? No fault divorce. School prayer. Oh, okay. So this motherfucker wants to get government out of people's lives, but also reinstate not just like the right for school prayer. That's protected. That was established as protected in the 60s. But he wants to reinstate organized school prayer. Again, this is the thing. The authoritarianism inherent and be like, don't vote for health care. You will have totalitarianism. Also, we'll make you pray to the God of our choice. Yes. Yes. So, But that in, is freedom. <laughs> this is such a big issue for him, his entire presidency. He cannot believe that the government can't make schools make prayer a thing again. He, he sounds so much like somebody... Who never read the Constitution. No. Who literally just somebody like, somebody's like, what do you think about all these constitutional rights? And he's like, oh, those, yeah, um, totally support school prayer. Yes. He said he wants to mandate a moment of prayer so that, quote, God can be enjoyed again by children. That's what's been stopping children from enjoying God. Enjoyed. Sure. That is, <laughs> it is my favorite verb for what that what that could have been. Oh, like, man. 
like gotten close to, known about, learned about, fucking enjoyed. Just like like it's a treat. Like you can enjoy (laughs) a little god as a treat. (laughs) Kill me. Kill me. Okay, so it's nineteen eighty one, like I said. Reagan is sixty nine. Three months into his presidency, Mm -hmm. he's like beefing with Jesus and he gets shot. That's right. That's right. So to be totally fair, that sucks. Yeah. Yeah. Never fun being shot. Not fun. Clearly, he survives. He does. And as a result, his approval ratings skyrocket. Yeah. Can you guess what his approval rating was? Before or after? After. After he gets shot. Like 90%. 73%. Oh, good. Okay. Not as good. Not, yeah. So went but from that's like, huge. Yeah. It is gigantic, huge. especially for a president. And a lot of people reference that number when they talk about like, everybody loved Reagan. Oh. It's like, oh, for this very brief period of time after he almost died. Oh, when they cite his high approval ratings yes. after he got shot? Yes. His average approval rating, I looked this up, was like in the 60s. It's it still pretty popular. down as low as 40%. Sure. It, average in the 60s is pretty high. Pretty popular. If you consider that it's pulled up by a high of 73 after you get shot, mm-hmm. it's like the new Coke thing, right? You take something away that people had, and they're yes. like, I like this more now. Right. Yeah, cool. Yes. So another big moment in his first year of presidency happens in August when he fired 11,345 striking air traffic controllers. Oh, man. Okay, so yeah, I I heard a story about this story recently. Yes. So they were on strike because they were like, we're really tired, and when we're tired, planes crash. Yeah. So could we only work 32 hours a week instead of 40? And he was like, no, 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 you absolutely cannot do that. You're a government employee, and also this strike is super illegal because you're a government employee and you're not allowed to strike. Yeah, a specific class covered by a specific law that says you cannot strike. So there was, they called in sick, right? Is that what it was? Something like that, yeah. yeah. But but they had a union. It was called PATCO, and mm-hmm. they, they talk about it as a strike. Yeah, they so didn't they technically called strike. Sick. They yes. called in sick, but it was a strike. Yes. He gives them 48 hours. He says, come back to work or you're all fired. And they were like, well, there's like 12,000 of us. Are you really going to fire us? And he does. Yeah. Yeah. He called in like people from the military, like retired people. Yep. Just bust in the union. Yeah. Yep. One historian says, quote, the firing of PATCO employees not only demonstrated a clear resolve by the president to take control of this bureaucracy, but it also sent a clear message to the private sector that unions no longer needed to be feared. It was a definitive moment in the history of union organizing in the United States. Um, it it wouldn't work for everybody as well as it worked for them because they had these unique resources of the military to, like, overcome it. But, yeah. Yeah. A lot of those people who were like, we want to work less hours, um, some of them never worked again in air traffic control in their lives. Yeah. Right. They just never – they were just – because there's, you know, one one set of employers, basically, and then they just, you know – Totally. Found new careers. Had to. Yeah. He went from campaigning against right-to-work laws to firing 11,300 people. Mm-hmm. Just wild. Wild. Which brings us to the end of his first year of his presidency. So to recap, he's been shot. Mm-hmm. He fired folks. And he signed this very specific uh, tax cut into law, which brings us to the thing he's probably most well-known for. Like on the positive side of the conversation, which is his economic policies. 
No, oh, oh, Reaganomics. That's right. I can't believe it didn't. Yeah. yeah. Reaganomics. So you have a degree in economics. I do. I am a, I am a trained economist, as they say. <laughs> in the same way I'm a trained art historian. Okay. Well, that's just rude. <laughs> that is not true at all. I mean, you and I have been to an art museum in the last month. You When's do the know last what time you're talking we've about. talked about the economy? Good point. Oh, every day. You want a high-level Reagan Reaganomics, or do yeah. you want you yeah. want my two sentences? The high, the high-level Re- Reaganomics is the idea. So, it was called Reaganomics by people who generally supported it mm-hmm. because the people who didn't like it called it by a more descriptive name, trickle-down economics. Big time. They which sure was did. That. Which, honestly, God, is the closest, the only ideology that is like, so, like you could somehow pull out of the Republican Party tends to be like maintain power at all costs, even like if it costs you democracy in the Constitution, and make sure that you put the money to the people at the top of the economic ladder so that it can then trickle down to everyone else. Right. It's like, hey, did y'all like serfdom? <laughs> no, you didn't. Well, but it's bad. Yeah, I mean, yes. So, yeah, the, so the most generous way I can describe it is that you give all these tax breaks and tax cuts and you structure it so that such that the people at the top who own businesses and things get to grow those theoretically. Or rather, you give them the money and then you hope mm-hmm. what happens is that they like do things like make jobs and reinvest in the people, the yeah. workers who should ostensibly have rights because they're the labor behind the profits. Yes. Yes. And of course, that is not actually what happens. What actually happens is, after several generations of that, and well, actually only after two generations of that, you have the highest wealth disparity and the highest concentration of wealth of any country in the world in recorded history, I believe, except for like some eras of like emperors in ancient Africa. Yeah, yeah basically, you have concentrated wealth inequality that rivals the Gilded Age because it turns out if you give people at the top the money, they keep the money. They <laughs> keep the money. What do you know? They sure fucking do. Because of these Reaganomic principles and because of this, like, big move in his first year, he's sort of known as this, like, anti-tax crusader. You know how many times he raised taxes on the average everyday person over his presidency? Um, I, so I don't know this little bit of trivia. I'm going to say, like, three or four? Eleven. Eleven times. What do you know, Mr. Tax Cuts? Not on the richest. On, like, working people. He, wow. yeah, he did not... Uh, raise taxes for corporations, but he did cut the budgets of all non-military programs, basically Medicaid, food stamps, federal education programs, the EPA. Um, although he did, ironically, protect programs like Social Security and Medicare. Uh, so, okay. So again, Social Security and Medicare, the only socialism in this country that is exclusively for old people, mm-hmm. like exclusively for not just so I want to say old people. It's a different old people than the us now, but exclusively the people who vote reliably Republican. Sure. Right. Exclusively for boomers at this point, basically. You know who he tried to get off Social Security? Who? People with disabilities. <laughs> oh, of course. Right. Did not feel like they had contributed enough into the pot to be taking anything back. God, Social Security. Such, the, what, what we now know is that both Medicare and Social Security, if you look at the numbers, are the single largest transfer of wealth in history from young people to old people. Mm-hmm. And they that, those old people have almost exclusively been like starting, like that time when that Democratic just started was the baby boomers, was like Reagan's era was like the leading edge of that. So yes, mm-hmm. the, the reliable Republican voters have just like t- taken incredible amounts of wealth from younger generations. Yes. Yes. And it's even though it's explicitly socialism, they have been worked very hard not to call it socialism <laughs> yeah. to themselves. It's only socialism if poor or people of color get the money. It is not socialism if they receive the money. Right. Or if people who are differently abled 
right? Just like anybody different than this like very specific demographic of people who benefit from these very specific entitlements. Oh, yes. One last point on the economics. We're going to jump ahead in time, but we're going to go back right after this. But I want to make this very specific point because I don't want to talk about it later because it fits in this moment right here, is that in 1987, the markets crashed. Wait, so imagine this. Imagine if he gets elected in 80. Mm -hmm. Imagine if you have two terms of this president and you have uh, giant tax cuts to Mm -hmm. the top percent of people with all that money. They just basically, instead of reinvesting it and giving it to the working uh, people who work for them and and reinvesting communities, they just throw it into, hoard it, throw it into assets like the stock market, which then becomes inflated. And then towards the end of that term, it just crashes. Can you imagine something like that ever happening again for like, all of the other Republican presidents to follow him. (laughs) Like, I don't know, George W. Bush and Donald Trump, both without exception. Whoops. So markets crash. We have to borrow so much money. Incredible amounts. So much money. Adding to the debt. The national debt. Oh, sorry. Go go for it. Go for it. I'm on the soapbox. I know where you're going. Yeah. Yeah. For all of the the small deficit Republicans, every Republican, Reagan, George W. Bush, and of course Trump, have all added to the national debt at incredible rates, much higher than any Democrat, even though they campaign on the fiscal responsibility. Mm -hmm. It is all like incredible amounts of debt added. Yes. Because these policies are totally unsustainable. (laughs) Yes. So the national debt went from $997 billion in 1987. So in today's money, it's who knows? Who cares? But at the time, it went from $997 billion to $2.85 trillion. Almost tripled. Almost right. tripled the national debt. So a trillion is a very hard number to comprehend. And so I just want to like very clearly for our listeners who, like me, might not give a shit about these numbers in any other context. Mm-hmm. One billion is a thousand million. Right. Mm-hmm. Which makes one trillion, one million million. Or a thousand billion. Or a thousand billion. A thousand billion. And it went from 997 billion to like two point, almost three trillion dollars. So there's a lot of money in a short amount of time. Mm-hmm. But that happened in his second term, which is what we're going to talk about now. Up until this point, we've been talking mostly about his first term. And that was actually the lesser of all his evils. In his second term, a whole lot happens. So it's 1984. He gets elected again. During his campaign for this election, there's some debate about his fitness for office. At this point, he's the oldest elected president. Um, It's 84. He was born in... 1911 so he's 73 okay and in a lot of these debates he seems very confused and Mm -hmm. he's not very sharp or clever he ends up making a joke about like the youth of his opponent and everybody laughs and like oh there's our charming reagan again but things are not looking great yeah I, i remember this joke they were like um you're really old. And it's like, uh, yeah, I, that's true. And I won't hold the youth uh, and inexperience of my opponent against him. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But which is to make up for the fact that he's like clearly got early onset dementia. Or yeah. like, I don't know if it's early at that point. He's just got like, he's starting to deteriorate. Yeah. So he won't be diagnosed with dementia for a full another decade. but Publicly. Publicly. And <laughs> that doesn't happen overnight. Big headlines for his second term. Three points we're going to touch on. You might know some things about all three of them. The Iran-Contra controversy? Mm-hmm. Uh, Iran-Contra scandal. Scandal. Iran-Contra illegal government action. <laughs> yes. If you want to be more specific. Iran-Contra 
totally insane illegal government action. Absolutely. War on drugs. Yeah, incredible, incredible waste of money. Likes of which we've not seen until Afghanistan. <laughs> sure. There's still a war on drugs. It's just wild. It's it, it turns on. out when you make money imprisoning people, you'll just declare a war on anything. Turns like out. people. Entire countries. Done. For multiple decades. Who gives a shit? There you go. Number three. AIDS epidemic. Ah. All right. Don't worry. We're at the hands of a Republican who used to be an actor. I'm sure any any threat from a virus is going to go exceedingly well. Exceedingly <laughs> well. Totally going to be absolutely on top of everything, get everybody exactly what they need, not going to blame marginalized groups of people at all. At all. Before that, though, what do you know about Iran-Contra? Okay. Um, it is the kind of stuff that is so crazy, most people are never taught about it in school, because if you actually knew just this very plain story of what the United States government did, you'd be like, they're a bunch of scammers. <laughs> they're a bunch of scammers. Yes. Uh, this is like, what the hell are you doing with that tax money? How is this man not impeached? How did he get away with this? Um, right. All very familiar themes. Mm-hmm. So it's super complicated. And I am shockingly not an expert. <laughs> so I'm going to do my very best to summarize. Um, asking a lot of follow-up questions will not go well for me. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to let you just stay in your lane here. I'm going to let you just go with it. This episode took hours of research, and I chose to omit specific people and dates and locations because it is so complicated. If folks are interested, there are just fabulous think pieces that have been written over the past 30 years Books, about all of this. Movies. Books, movies, yes. Here is... Courses in college. The condensed Wikipedia version. <laughs> okay, so to start, the headline is that senior Reagan administration officials secretly facilitated the sale of arms to the government of Iran, which at the time was the subject of an arms embargo. So very complicated. Legally, they, they were not allowed to sell any, any weapons to them, but they yes. were selling weapons anyway. Yes. Reagan had promised to keep uh, Carter's policy not to sell guns to Iran because they believed that Iran supported terrorism. And However, a few years into his presidency, like very early on, two, three years, Reagan and this team of people secretly decided to start selling arms as soon as it was politically possible. Because they thought if Iran couldn't get arms from the U.S., one, the U.S. would make that money, and two, that the Soviet Union would then start selling Iran these arms, and Iran would be beholden to the, quote, sphere of Soviet influence. So they hated they hated terrorists, but they hated communists more. They fucking hated God. communists more. So they were going to be like, well, if the communists are going to sell them the guns, well... The missile or whatever the hell it was, we were going to sell them first. Yes. So again, the, even didn't care that it was illegal. Mm. Explicitly, like on the books, like just like today, sanctions against Iran, mm -hmm. totally illegal. They're like, mm -hmm. couldn't do it anyway. Mm -hmm. Yep. They had all of these cover stories for why it was happening. They were basically not admitting it to the public, but behind the scenes, it was like this exchange and selling it to Israel, who was then selling it to Iran. Like very complicated network web of lies. Not money laundering, arms laundering. <laughs> arms laundering. Publicly, the U.S. is like, don't sell anything to Iran, world. Um, they're terrible. But behind the scenes, they're negotiating sales. 
So that's the Iran side of this Iran-Contra. Yeah, now let's talk about the Contras. <laughs> now let's talk about the Contras. So to further complicate things, on the other side of the world, the U.S. was using the profits from those secret sales to fund the far-right militant activity of Contra militants. What do you know about Contra militants? Okay, so these Contras were fighting a, I don't know if it was socialist or communist, but a democratic regime mm-hmm. in South America. Which country are we talking again? So the Contras were originally based in Honduras, but they're trying to overthrow this left-wing government in Nicaragua. In not, Nicaragua, yes. So yes. The Nicaraguan government, which was democratic. So again, in like the spirit of democracy and freedom, the Contras are trying to fight against democracy and freedom. Yes. But... Because it's not... Dem- Democratic or free enough? Yeah, no, no. It's because <laughs> the democracy and freedom there is like looks a little bit more like Bernie Sanders than it does like Mitt Romney, and mm-hmm. so the United States is like, "Fuck them, fund the other guys, then <laughs> fund the other guys, overthrow them." Yes, yes. So they're selling these arms, funneling this money to this rebel group, the Contra militants, who are trying to overthrow this left wing. Militant slash, like, could also be called terrorist if oh, you weren't, right? absolutely, yeah, yes. Right? So, like, yes. U.S. government is funding yes. funding right-wing, like, fascist terrorists to fight against democracy just because it's, like, a little too lefty in where their democracy went. Absolutely. In addition to just being morally terrible, it was also super, super illegal. Oh, absolutely. So, for there was this, this law passed. It was passed for a specific time, and then it got extended. It was called the Boland Act which made it illegal for the U.S. government to give money to the Contra militants. Yes. So let's just pause here, right? Because right now, what I love about this is that we've got one set of laws that we're breaking in Iran, right? And, and people are like, kind of know about it. Maybe, kind of, but it's definitely still illegal on the books. Big time. And then they're using that money to fund a second set of things, which is also explicitly illegal, yes. right? This is all at Reagan's, like, Reagan's administration, right? And this yes. second thing is like not only illegal, it's like explicitly against like what you would consider basically the values of democracy and freedom. Mm-hmm. But are there any more illegal things we can add on to this to just make it even worse and maybe hurt black people somehow? <laughs> so we're going to get to that in like 90 seconds. Let me shore up this very uh, specific conflict train of thought, which is that um, people f- find out they're doing this and it does not go well for no. the administration. Mm-mm. Reagan is like, I had no idea. This is shocking to me. Oh, no. I'm going to appoint these two Republicans and this one moderate Democrat to investigate me. Like, they're just going to investigate me. It's no big deal. They're going to tell the American public the absolute truth, objectively what happened. This group of investigators came back and they were like, well, you know, we wouldn't advise a president to do this. But we can't find explicit evidence that he was orchestrating it. Like, all these people around him were definitely orchestrating it. We're going to indict 14 of them. But we can't find a direct tie to President Reagan. So right. we can't, like, hold him accountable the in The fact way. that... So, again, it's almost as if, like, if you're trying to hold the president accountable and the only constitutional mechanisms for this are impeachment and you don't let those mechanisms play out, turns out, or the, or the executive branch doesn't comply, turns out you can cover up a lot of audacious, <laughs> audacious stuff. Sure can. 
So anyway, the American people are not so kind. They're basically like, this is your administration. You should have known. If you didn't know, that means you're bad at your job. Yeah, if you don't know, then can we talk to whoever is in charge, please? <laughs> yes. That's yeah. what I always want to say. Every, like, when Trump was at the press conference the other day, he's like, I had no idea. One, three, like, there's there's video from a year ago of him being like, oh, yeah, I disbanded this pandemic council, right? Mm-hmm. And then in this week, like, I had no idea, right? It's like, mm-hmm. okay, if you have no idea, can we talk to whoever is actually in charge, please? <laughs> right. Right? We talk right. to your manager, because clearly you're the fool if yes. you're not. But anyway. Clearly they knew. They're just doing illegal shit and trying to get away with it. Got yes. it. Yes. And there's plausible deniability, mm-hmm. which is basically what all corrupt governments hang their hat on. What mobsters hang their hat on. <laughs> what do you know? So Reagan's approval rating fell from 67 to 46 percent in less than a week, which was like the greatest drop in approval rating for any president in ever in that amount of time. Up until him. Employment <laughs> dropped or went up from 3% to 20% a week. Yes. But he was never held explicitly accountable. Um, so that was 1986. Position ourselves in the timeline. We're going to go back a few years so that we can weave in the narrative of this war on drugs hmm. with the Contra of Nicaragua because they're connected. The term, the war on drugs, was actually coined by Nixon and... Um, lots of people from his administration, lots of research has shown that this quote unquote war on drugs was actually an attempt to make drug use a moral issue that then could be like campaigned against and weaponized. Civil rights era, if we want to incarcerate large groups of people who are against our policies, what do we do? We make lifestyle behaviors a moral issue because then we can like lock people up. Yeah. Uh, put another way, right? Like if you pass civil rights and you no longer have Jim Crow, the Republicans next move was to say, OK, uh, how do we now incarcerate more people per capita than anywhere else in the world? Mm-hmm. Find stuff to make illegal and then disproportionately police. And that's what you do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so picking up where Nixon left off, Reagan declared that illicit drugs because he's like morality police, that illicit drugs were a direct threat to the U.S. national security. And um, not funding terrorists, by the way, just (laughs) drugs. I know this. Oh, man, it just kills me. So through legislation, things like the mandatory minimum sentencing laws are put in place. Um, They shift policy away from a public health approach to drug use, which is what we're shifting back toward for opium addiction because white people. Um, But at the time... Yeah, true. Yes. When you have drugs that white people are using, it becomes very much like opiate addiction becomes a treatment model. Yes. Public health model versus a criminal model. So drug offenders at the time started to face like lifetime consequences for minor infractions. Um, Although a lot of the policy was specifically around crack cocaine and not cocaine. Hmm. So powdered cocaine, we haven't... Yeah. Much lighter sentences, popular Mm -hmm. in Hollywood, at white people Wall Street parties. White people fucking love cocaine. Yes. Love it. Sorority girls. Love it. Love cocaine. Yes. Lindsay Lohan found with like seven bags of cocaine in her pockets. And you know what she does now? She hosts a reality TV show in Mykonos. Like she owns some clubs. (laughs) Yes. Yes. If you're found with, with powdered cocaine in America, you're basically given a parking ticket and then like a a free pass to whatever the next party is. Right. right. Pick up some trash on your way. Yes. From point A to point B. Absolutely. Crack cocaine, however, which is chemically the exact same thing, just prepared differently, used disproportionately by people in the inner city and carried incredibly steep fines, like lifetime prison sentences. 
used by people in communities deprived of opportunity, not by accident. So I say communities deprived of opportunity because that is actually a um, core social situation that necessitated drugs being a like a financial opportunity. Communities that were redlined, that didn't own their own property. Couldn't own property. Factories that were incentivized to move out of the city to more suburban locations where more white people had the jobs after the white flight. Like people in these communities deprived of opportunity now actually just like didn't have this this upward mobility. They had no employment opportunities or lesser employment opportunities. While this is happening, Nancy Reagan is like... Oppressing black people, that's going to be my cause. <laughs> and the slogan is going to be just say no. And so it's 1982. Around this time, cocaine has been introduced to America. Before that, a little bit, but not like to the extent that it's about to be. Mm-hmm. 80s were wild in Miami. What? Wild. Wild. Uh, cocaine's coming through Miami. And by the way, we should know because we were born in the middle of America yeah. Many years later. <laughs> Many years later. Um, uh, so, but this is an issue that Nancy and Ronald take up with fervor. Reagan still, at this time, it should be noted, hates communism. So, like, in the way that, like, Mike Pence hates gay people. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, a suspiciously large <laughs> amount of hatred. Like, too much hatred. Yes. So much. So, as part of this, like, global effort to overthrow governments in other countries that represent any sort of, like, left-wing democracy, he begins funneling aid, like I said, and he also lets them smuggle crack cocaine all over the U.S. Oh, yeah. And, and I'm not saying that, like, gossip. Um, I just read the Office of the Inspector General's report from the Justice Department, written in 1996. It's like, oh, yeah. The CIA totally let them smuggle in all of this crack cocaine and then specifically told them what cities to take it to. Yes, yes. The CIA directed the crack cocaine epidemic to raise the money to illegally send a terrorist (laughs) in South America to fight democracy because they were a little too much like Bernie Sanders. Yes. Like, come on. Right. And so it sounds it sounds like insane conspiracy theory until you read it from the inspector general of the United States. And you're like, oh, yeah, our bad. Just don't tell kids about this in school anymore. Right. So Reagan's giving money from these arms deals and he's letting them come in and profit from this crack cocaine in opportunity or in communities deprived of opportunity. And then he is able to weaponize this war on drugs by saying, look at all this violence in these communities where they're selling crack cocaine. But I'm using all this profit to explicitly promote violence in these other countries. Oh, yeah. When Kanye rapped, (laughs) how do we stop the Black Panthers? Ronald Reagan cooked up the answer. He totally nailed it. When Killer Mike said government, when talking about 9-11 and 9-11 conspiracy, said government did that like they cooked crack. It was true. The government itself cooked the crack for, for America. Yes, So that's how all that is connected. Yes. We've got some arms deals in Iran and like crack cocaine 
in major cities throughout the country. Yeah. How long was it before? So it was 96. It was 10 years later that the government actually officially explicitly acknowledged that the CIA was directing the sales of crack cocaine into the United States. Yeah. So there had been actual like many, many news reports that came out where a whole bunch of informants uh-huh. who had previously been working with the Contras were murdered and then like left on the sidewalk for people to find and write news stories about. Mm. So there's a lot of intimidation tactics. Um, but essentially from like 1986, 87, people were bringing this up like, hey, this is not a war on drugs. Hey, we just found this connection between these arms deals and all this crack cocaine on shrimp boats. Like mm-hmm. anybody want to talk about this? Which brings us to the third and final major scandal of Reagan's presidency. The AIDS epidemic. Reagan and his administration, their response in the early stages of this epidemic have been called unbelievable and cruel. There was a documentary that came out uh, five or six years ago that was called When AIDS Was Funny. And essentially what it did was it documented the numerous press conferences in which the press secretary for this administration made fun of gay people getting AIDS. Wow. The administration and people associated with it really like to promote the fact that over the course of his administration, funding for AIDS research increased. So clearly this was something he cared about. But the reality is that they literally did not care about these people. And they really didn't care about it, about these people when the epidemic was first starting. There are some reports that show that as early as the late 60s, early 70s, there are some incidents of infection in the United States, very small amounts. Um, The number of infections that really started to escalate happened in the late 70s, early 80s. and Right right as Reagan was coming into office. Right as he was coming into office. And the term HIV AIDS, like a name for this virus, uh, came into the public zeitgeist in 1983. During this time, like I said, his press secretary would joke with reporters, calling it things like the gay plague. And like when pressed... Wait, a press secretary said that from the podium in the White House? Laughed about it and asked reporters, like, do you have the gay plague? Like, this one reporter for years was like, hey, this is a problem. Are you concerned? Is the administration concerned? And the press secretary, like, verbatim said, like, he's not concerned about it at all. Just like, like literally, just like said the thing out loud that you're not mm-hmm. supposed to say out loud. Yeah. Um, and because he was so set on being this like moral leader, that instead of thinking about this as this major public health crisis that he had a responsibility to stop, he wrapped it up in this like issue of morality, and his policies <sighs> reflected that. The thing is. No part of this is about morality. No, then or now, right? It's like, all fucking viruses. It this is just biology. It's all like the but evolution you, of the pathogen. When you wrap those things up, when you say like this virus is a moral issue, your policies and the way you address it reflect that. And his policies and the way he addressed that were informed by an actual group called the Moral Majority, and they were super homophobic actively campaigning like Jerry Falwell, like gays will burn in hell. This is a plague on society. And instead of the moral majority 
saying things like, actually, it's our responsibility to make sure millions of people don't die. What we're going to do is we are going to get these sodomy laws that have been repealed put back in place. So now it's just like illegal to have gay sex. And if you do that, you'll go to jail. And that stops none of the spread of this virus. No, weren't the sodomy laws like ruled unconstitutional at this point? I mean... I'm not a sodomy law expert, but what I can tell you is that they had been repealed, and in 20 states, they were reenacted. Yeah, my con law uh, classes are failing me now. I can't remember the the Supreme Court case that started to repeal these. But yes, they they were basically found totally unconstitutional because obviously, like, you can't police that. And you can't you police shouldn't. that. Yeah, yes. you can't police if you can't police sex between people, or consenting adults, consenting adults, right? Like, you can't police between. Two people because you think, like, those two people don't follow your moral codes. Yes, more absolutely. Than, as well as the rest. Right. So for the first three years that this epidemic is taking place during Reagan's presidency, basically nobody says or does anything. Reagan himself didn't even acknowledge the disease verbally, never said it out loud until 1985. Despite the fact that within the first three years of his presidency... The U.S. had 7,239 confirmed AIDS cases that resulted in 5,596 deaths. Like 80% mortality. Yes. And by the time his presidency was over, you know how many people had died of AIDS? 90,000 people had died. 90,000. This willful ignorance and public indifference not only resulted in 90,000 deaths, but just as punitively and cruelly, it resulted in this stigmatization of gay men and sex workers in a way that made accessing health care at the local and even like broader level impossible for so many of these people for so long. But just so we're clear... No fault divorce was his biggest regret. Yeah, yeah, that's the most <laughs> that's the most audacious part of that. Yeah. Um as folks can tell, his legacy was a complicated one with many many people still thinking of him as one of the top conservative presidents of all time. <laughs> his economic <laughs> policies are still touted. He's credited with ending the Cold War. Um but so few people understand the like sinister motivations behind all of his policies. Start out as a champion for workers' rights for the low, low price of a million dollars a year. Reverse that for the rest of his life. Yes. End of the Cold War. Also managed to like make a huge bubble, which led to an economy crash, fund terrorists, and break laws while introducing crack cocaine uh, to the most hard-hit communities in America. Mm-hmm. Yes. Clearly a conservative champion in so many ways. Yeah. And so I'm going to end this bit with a quote, which feels uncomfortably familiar at this moment in time. This quote is by a, a historian who said, The combination of Reagan's speaking style, unabashed patriotism, negotiation skills, as well as his savvy use of the media, played an important role in defining the 1980s and the future legacy of this country. Which feels bad. Yeah. Feels like, um, thank God we learned our lesson and we never put a Republican 
or sorry, and well, we never put another actor with like zero political experience <laughs> back into the White House to handle some major viral outbreak. God, that that would have been a nightmare. We're so lucky. You know where to find us? At this point. Thanks for the reviews. Yeah, but please tell your friends where they can find us. That yeah. would be great. If you happen to know of anybody who might be stuck in the house looking for things to do, let them know. We have, at this point, at least a day's worth of episodes that they can listen to. Like, oh, yeah. eight-ish back hours. Back to back to back? Totally. Spread it out. Yes. Get two days. Um, if you listen to one a month, you probably have enough to last through the end of this quarantine. Until next week, don't leave your house. And do not be a hero. Do not be a hero. Bye.